If you've got a Bible, let's open it up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. So if you remember last week, one of the things we said is, um, you know, Galatians is, as we're moving through the New Testament, uh, Galatians is all about the responsibility to understand grace and the need to walk in grace and stand firm in that and to not let a false teacher or a false idea creep into either a church or to an individual heart and, and start saying, well, grace is a good start, but you need to add something to it. To never let uh, Christianity fall under the idea of, well, to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and do something, right? And uh, whether that's and be baptized or and speak in tongues or and give money to the church and whatever. Not that any of those things aren't important, but none of them are, are part of salvation, Salvation is by believing in Jesus Christ. And Galatians is all about the responsibility that we have to understand that and to hold fast to that because it's such a critical part of walking faithfully with the Lord. Ephesians is all about the thrill and the joy of walking in that. And the two go hand in hand. And so last week, you know, we mentioned just sort of Paul's history with the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul passed this church for about two and a half to three years. And so it was a very well-discipled church. It was a church that Paul had taken through the entire word of God. Uh, it's a church that would eventually, uh, the Apostle John would wind up moving there. So it's a church that has had a lot of discipleship, a lot of grounding, a lot of understanding. It's had in a very pagan society. So it's thriving in the midst of opposition. And Paul's writing this letter to encourage the church. All right, he's, he's, he's a prisoner right now at the time that he's writing this, wanting to encourage the church about what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the joy and the privilege of being a Christian? And so, uh, sort of where we've been at in the last two chapters last week is, you know, God's grace and his peace, like Paul always starts out his letters, but then he talks about, you know, God the Father has chosen us, and God the Son has saved us, God the Spirit is empowering us, and we've been made alive even though we were dead in our sins, and uh, God is our peace, and he's building us up into the church collectively, not just as individuals, but as a group of believers. And so tonight we're going to continue that thought, and we're going to finish, we're going to go through chapter 3, which is, completes the first half of Ephesians, which is all about what God has done. And we'll start moving into chapter 4, which is the second half where it talks about what's the appropriate response. All right? So, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And I'll pause right there because Paul's about ready to make a point. But he's not going to get around to making the point until verse 14 when he starts over again. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, like a lot of great guys... It's slightly distractible, okay? So, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So it can, if you're reading Ephesians, you can read chapter 3 and it's kind of like, well, he just lost me because he starts to make a point and then he's like, wait a second, back up, context, here we go. Um, so he says, by revelation, God has made known to me the mystery. And what mystery is he talking about? He explains it 
in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. What is Paul talking about here? And it's important for us to understand the context, especially in a verse like this, because if we're not careful to read it, and like, what's the big deal? But Paul says, God has made known to me by revelation a mystery. And that mystery is this, that the Gentiles have the same access to Jesus Christ that the Jewish people do. And for us, if we're not careful, we kind of think, well, duh, because at this point in world history, somewhere around 99% of Christianity is made up of Gentile people, people who aren't ethnically uh, Jewish. So the vast majority of Christians are non-Jewish. But in Paul's time especially, that was such a radical idea because here's what it means. It means that all of a sudden, salvation is not hinging on can you keep the law. It is on can you accept and believe the promise that God has made. Is the goodness of God sufficient? Is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross sufficient for salvation? And Paul says, I've been given this mystery, which is that the Gentiles can be fellow heirs of the same body. What happened? Well, you know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I think, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. It was given as a temporary contract to demonstrate our inability to keep the law, to in, our inability to work our way towards righteousness. And Jesus fulfilled it by fulfilling it. He demonstrated that he was greater than it. And by demonstrating that he's greater than the law, he now establishes forever the idea that is set in place in the time of Abraham and is brought to fullness, which is that if you believe God, that faith is what makes you righteous. It's not your works. It's not your actions. It's not your good intentions. It's not anything else. It's faith in God puts you in position to receive the righteousness of God. It's never about you becoming righteous. And this is important because, you know, a lot of times people have different, you know, people have different religious ideas of, well, you know, we're all basically on the same path. We're all trying to get up the mountain to find truth. And there's a point at which you want to graciously say, you know, we are in a sense all trying to climb a mountain to find truth, if you want to go with that metaphor. But there's a catch, and the catch is that nobody can climb the mountain, Right? If you want to get to the, if, if truth is at the top of a mountain, we're all trying to get there. That's, and you could say, well, there's many paths up the mountain. Yeah, and they're all dead ends. You're all going to, you know, that, walk up and just fall back down. So the exception, if you want to find truth, what happens? Truth has to come down, right? And what happened is Christianity is not about, hey, we now figured out the right path to get our way up to God. It's God came down to us. And that's a mystery, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion on the face of the earth. Every other religion, every other religious system is about, well, you need to do this, you need to walk in this, usually you need to give us a certain amount of money, right? You need to behave a certain way, and if you're good enough to pass our test or, or you know, whoever, our God's test, uh, you'll make it. That is, if you try hard enough to get to the mountain, you'll make it. That's what every other religion teaches, Christianity is the one that says, no, actually, we're incapable. And God came down because we are incapable. And that's what Paul's saying. That's the mystery. That now, if truth has come down, truth is accessible to everyone. Right? It doesn't matter if you were smart and you were getting closer to the right path or you weren't smart and you weren't anywhere close. You were all lost. We were all dead. We were all sunk. Truth came down, and that's the mystery. So Paul, is, he's going on, you know, God has made us alive. He's made us one church. Oh, by the way, he's brought, he has brought the goodness. He's brought the righteousness down for every single one of us, and that 
is a profound mystery. That God would offer it to every single one of us, regardless of what we've done. It's one of those things that we accept because God tells us that it's true, right? But it really defies all of our own reason. It defies logic. It defies our ability to comprehend. Why would God come down for every single one of us? Why would he not establish some sort of grading system, right? Like for the people I like, or the people I mostly like, or the people who make me feel good, right? The, the way that we interact with other people oftentimes is we kind of set an economic value on a relationship. You invest in a relationship. Uh, and that means what? I'm putting something in and I expect to get a return on my investment. God says, no, I'm just offering it. And Paul says, that's a mystery. And we, it's been revealed that this is the truth of the mystery, but we don't necessarily get to say, well, here's why God is good to us. We get to accept God is good to us because God is a good God. God loves us because God is a loving God. Paul says, that's the mystery. And he says, verse eight, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ through the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. <clears throat> so a couple things here. Paul says, all right, the grace is, this grace has been given to me. We talk about grace, if you're trying to remember, you know, it's, we use it like an acronym, like God's riches at Christ's expense. It's all the fullness that God is offering us that we have access to because of what Jesus did on the cross, okay? This grace was given. These riches of God were given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, I've been given this incredible gift to preach to the Gentiles. And he says this as he's sitting in prison, right? He's, he's writing uh, in a prison cell, shackled to a Roman, saying, boy, I've just got this incredible gift. And so don't lose heart of my tribulations. But he says something else that's interesting. It's kind of one of these verses that, you know, Paul says these things sometimes, and you're like, okay, I'll take his word for it. But he says, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's a weird verse. Because elsewhere in Scripture, when Paul talks about powers and principalities, what's he talking about? The spiritual realm. And usually, specifically, the, the demonic realm. So he says, the wisdom of God is made known by the church to the principalities and powers. That when the church comes together, it's educational for angels and demons. It's kind of an interesting thought, right? Like, well, how big is your, you know, when you go to a pastor's conference, how big is your church? Well, are you counting the angels or not, right? I don't, I'm not, you know, it's like, pastors are always like, well, if you count the kids, well, they are human beings, you know. Um, what, are you counting the angels, right? And, and the demons come, but they're not really members, right? Um, but in the eyes of God, when the church comes together, it's teaching the principalities and the powers things about who he is. Because Peter tells us that angels desire to understand grace. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thought, but angels don't understand grace in the same sense that we do because angels haven't sinned. The ones who have, who have remained faithful to the Lord. So they, don't, they haven't experienced the idea of I've been separated from God and God bridged the gap. And so when we talk about the grace of God, they get an insight into the character of God. Like, oh wow, God loves these people that he created most of whom are losers, uh, in a way that 
we don't really appreciate. It's educational. The grace of God, the wisdom of God is being manifested. And in the demonic realm, every time the church comes together and they, and they see people saved and redeemed, they realize, wow, God really did have a good plan. God, God really actually knows what he's doing. And, you know, you can feel kind of awkward, but you think about, you know, the demonic realm thought for, for three days, they thought they won, right? They thought they had, they had, they had won the war, right? Satan is thinking, I just finished this. And Jesus looks up right before he dies and says, it's finished. And all of a sudden, Satan's thinking, shoot, I don't know what just happened, but I don't think that was what I planned. He spends three days scrambling, trying to figure out what on earth does it mean when Jesus Christ says it is finished. And he's watching the tomb, and on the morning of the third day, that dead body starts to breathe, and he thinks, that was not my plan. And when the church comes together to declare the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the resurrected Christ, it matters in the spiritual realm. Paul says, hey, this is part of why the church comes together. And he says, the grace was given to me to preach among the Gentiles. Gentiles, the grace has been given to you to declare and actually teach angelic beings about the wisdom of God. It's kind of a weird verse, but Paul tells us that's what we're doing. So talk about the grace of God with each other in the church. He goes on and he's getting back to his attempted point. In verse 14, we're going to read it through the end of the chapter. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for this reason, and you kind of take it back to the end of, of chapter 2, which is when he tried to make the point, for this reason being what? That God is good. That God has made us alive. That God is building the church. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, well, we'll pause there. Paul says, guys, this is what I've been praying for you. Because God is building the church, because he's so good in what he's doing, I want you guys to know that I'm praying this for you. And we talked about this last week with some of the things that Paul references in chapter 1. But Paul is praying some powerful stuff. I and mean, if you want to pray for somebody, I'd encourage you, write these things down. If you're married, pray these things for your spouse. If you're not married... Pray these things for your spouse, because if you ever get married, they're going to need it. But that you'd be strengthened with might. Don't you want, don't you want the people around you to be strengthened with the, with the might of Christ? That Christ would dwell in your hearts? I want Christ filling up every single one of us, right? That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and depth and height of the love of God, which passes knowledge. I like this. Paul says, hey, the love of God is beyond knowledge, but I am praying that you would know it. You can't possibly know it, but I'm praying that you know it. I want you to grasp the width and length and height and depth because you can't possibly know it. I want you to be growing in that. Isn't that a great prayer? I want you as a church, Paul's saying, I am praying for you guys that God would just broaden your ability to comprehend that you might know him more and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Don't you want that in your life? You want that in the life of the people around you? What do you want people to be filled with? If you're filled with the fullness of God, a lot of other things aren't going to be nearly as pressing 
a lot of your challenges aren't going to be nearly as overwhelming. The fullness of God is pretty full, right? It's pretty powerful. So he says, verse 20, Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a great way to wrap up the third chapter. Paul spent half this book talking about here's what God has done, here's who God is, here's what God is doing, here's how God is working, here's the ways that I'm praying that you would be better able to comprehend all the truths about God. So praise the Lord, Paul says. To him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Right? When we, when we comprehend what God has done for us, what should we do? Praise him for it. We say, what has God done? What is God doing? What do we do? We should praise him for it. And that's, that's, a, that's, that's sort of the end and the beginning of a thought of Paul's, right? Here's what God has done. Praise the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. So, we spent half of this book talking about what God has done. And now we're going to make a switch. Chapter 4 is the beginning of the second half. He's going to say, okay, therefore... And people say it, it's an old line, but it always works. If you see a therefore in the scripture, you should ask, what is it there for? And so if you're going to open up your Bible in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore the pris- I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, you better go back and understand what the first three chapters are talking about. Or else nothing that he says afterwards is going to make sense. So this is what he's going to now address as the response to the first three chapters. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So, the order matters. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are chapters 4, 5, and 6. They are not chapters 1, 2, and 3. He does not say, everything he's about to say in the next three chapters are not, hey, do this so that you can have access to the goodness of God. So that you can earn righteousness. So that God will like you. No, no. They are do this because God has already done all these things. And there's no appropriate response other than this. Right? So he says, I'm begging you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk appropriately. Respond appropriately to who God is. If you ever find yourself, and we all do at some point in time, find ourselves struggling to walk worthy, to walk in an appropriate uh, response. Sometimes what we do is we get to like, well, I just got to double down and try harder. I got to think less about sin. I got to focus on, on doing more things for God. Sometimes you need to focus more on just what has God done again? Who is God? If you're struggling to, to fulfill Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the solution is not to put them first. The solution is to go back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. Right? You go back. Who is God? What has God done? What is God doing? Okay, now I'm equipped with that to better address. What do I need to do? What, do I need? what can I do? What should I be doing to walk worthy? All right, so here we go. We're going to be just kind of unpacking there's so much in these next three chapters about different ways that we should be walking that 
We're probably going to gloss over them. If you're hoping I'll get to the one that your spouse needs to hear the most, sorry, we probably won't, but that's okay. So you're gonna, we're called to walk worthy of the calling with all lowliness, so humility, gentleness, long-suffering. Some of your translations might say patience. Bearing with one another in love, so enduring with the, with the struggles of other people. We talked about that when we were in Galatians. Endeavoring to keep the unity in the Spirit. He's going to make a point here at the end of this paragraph. Keep the unity. The unity exists already. And you can look at the church sometimes and say, well, does it really? Yeah, no, it does. We're, we're one church. Right? Unless someone is teaching a, a false gospel where they're saying that either Jesus Christ is not who he said he was or that you need to add something to the gospel to be saved, unless that's going on, we're one church. We're one body. And so Paul, he makes the point, hey, as, we're gonna, as, he, as I'm going to exhort you, Paul is saying, as I'm going to exhort you to walk worthy of this calling, you need to remember that this is not just about your show. This is about the church. This is, and Ephesians says this as a book. Well, there's a lot of specific things in here for individuals. But there's a really strong emphasis on the church. You cannot read Ephesians and apply it to your life and then walk away and say, I'll go to church when I feel like it. Ephesians is about, hey, we are being built up into something. We are growing into something. God is making us into something. He is using us for something. He is pouring out blessings on us. And so if, you, if you're like, well, hey, I'm going to read this and then just do my own thing, kind of a you know, John Wayne Christianity, that's not how it works. Okay? So there's, how does he say it? There is one body. There is one spirit. You were called in one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. If someone has a different flavor of Christianity or a different uh, bent that maybe suits their personality style better, if it's not contrary to the Word of God, if it's not a false gospel, there are brothers and sisters, right? And, and they may dress differently. They may sing different songs than we do. Their services may be a little more boring or a lot more exciting than our services, but there's still the church, right? And so we are called to still see them as the church because our goal is not to create a one-building church, right? The goal of any church, any healthy church, is not I want more people to come to my church. It's I want more people under the headship of Christ's church, and if they're getting discipled here, that's wonderful. If they're getting discipled somewhere else, that's wonderful. I want the church to grow, not this church to grow. Do you understand the difference? That's what Paul is reminding us as he's getting into this. Hey, walk worthy of the calling. One of the first things to walk worthy in the calling of is don't get too obsessed over yourself. This is about what God is doing with all of us. He goes on in verse 7. We'll read down through verse 10. He says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first ascended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Some of you will try and unpack this, and you can go down a kind of a big rabbit hole with this first. But basically, here's what Paul's saying. Grace has been given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We've all been given grace because we've been given the gift. 
the gift of restoration, the gift of fellowship, really the gift of Christ. So we've been given grace. And so understand that. What does it mean? He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. We've been given grace because we've been given the gift of a victorious king, of Jesus Christ who could lead captivity captive, right? He can set the captives free. He can put the captors in chains. So the things that held us, Jesus is greater than. Who we are now, Jesus is still greater than. And so he, because of his gift, is going to give us grace in proportion to his gift. How big is his gift? Well, you can't measure it. I can't measure it. So how big is his grace? You're not going to get to the end of it, right? So verse 11, he goes on now specifically addressing sort of some specific functions of the gifts that God gives. And he gave some, he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro about and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. <clears throat> so he himself, Paul says, God himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. All right? He says there's, there's sort of four roles of leadership in the church that God has given. And what's their purpose? It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So apostles and prophets um, are like leaders, people who can speak prophetically. Sometimes that is actually telling the future. Sometimes it's just declaring the will of God. I'd say both of those roles are probably in a lesser function today than they were during the time of Paul because the word of God has been given. We don't necessarily need someone in the same capacity to stand up and say, here's what God is saying right now. Not that those people in those roles don't exist, but there is a sort of just a, there's been a shift since the gospel, since the word of God has been completed. They're still here. There's just not as many. You gave someone to be evangelists. Some people just have a, a, a supernatural ability to tell other people about Jesus Christ. And you gave some to be pastors and teachers. Some people have been given a, a gift and an ability to disciple people, to teach people about what the Word of God says, to proclaim the truth of God, okay? And what are these roles given for? They're given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So, this is really, 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 really important. The saints get equipped to do the work of the ministry. So who does ministry? The saints, right? Who is in full-time ministry? The saints, right? If you believe in Jesus Christ and you're getting equipped for the work of the ministry, you're doing the work of the ministry, you're in the ministry, you're in full-time ministry. You are a minister. And apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, they're also called to be doing the work of the ministry because they need to be getting equipped too, right? So we're all called to be doing the work of the ministry for what? The edifying of the body of Christ. For the church to mature. Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. 
So when do we quit doing the work of ministry? When we're all unified in faith and when we all know Jesus Christ in the fullest sense. So when do you quit being a minister? You don't. You die. That's actually, that's how you switch jobs, okay? If you're, if you're a Christian, you're in ministry. And ministry does not have a retirement date. It does not matter what your job is. It does not matter where your paycheck comes from. You're in full-time ministry. And what's the purpose? That, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. The purpose of ministry, the purpose of leadership in the church, specifically as Paul's talking about these four roles, is that the church would grow up. All right? That's the call. Remember Paul's telling us, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called? What's one thing we should do to walk worthy? Grow up. God did not save us so we could stay immature, so we could stay selfish, so we could stay small in our thinking. He saved us because he wants us to grow up, because he's created us, we talked about the last couple weeks, for good works. There's things he wants us to do. And he created us, and he knows that we will actually find fulfillment in doing those things, but we're going to have to grow up. So Paul says, hey, there's, <clears throat> God has given roles of authority in the church so that the saints can do the ministry. And all that, that function of a healthy church is supposed to happen so that the church grows up. Now, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So this I say, Paul says, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. What does it look like to walk in a, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called? Paul says your life should not look like the rest of the world. You should not be walking down the same road as the rest of the world. If you're, if you're going to the same places, if your life is heading the same direction, if you're pursuing all the same interest, you need to go back and read chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because if you understand who God is and what he's done, you say, wow, I want to I get closer to that. And if you're, if you're following the same trail that the world is on, which is just to pursue your own self-fulfillment, which will in reality not fulfill yourself, then you don't understand the gospel. And so Paul says, okay, listen, I, this I say, you shouldn't be walking as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And then he describes... What, what does it look like? All right, they have been alienated from the life of God. People who walk around who are not Christians, they've been alienated from life. It's kind of a sobering thought, right? They're alive, but they're dead. They're, they're walking around. There's, there's no real spiritual life happening. Should your life look like that, Paul's saying? Should we look like that? Should we look like people who have no serious eternal life? They have ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. Some of them are very smart, but they are still fools. If, they, if you don't understand the truth of who God is, you're ignorant. Because of the blindness of their heart, their heart is shut off. They cannot see. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. It's an interesting concept because we get to see it played out in our world right now. They're past feeling. There are things that people do that we look at and we say, how is that even possible? How, how could a human being do that to another human being, right? 
whether it's with a firearm or with a surgical implement, we look at what's going on in our world and we say, how on earth could you do that? And the answer is you become past feeling. Your heart reaches a point where you do not feel in the same way. You, do not, you are not capable of understanding the value of life. And so we can look at people sometimes and say, oh my gosh, how could a person be so stupid? And what we need to understand is, no, no, no. This is the logical progression of a life that is separated from the Lord. And so that person does not, you don't need to endanger yourself to reach out to that person depending on the situation, right? But the person does not deserve your wrath. The person deserves your prayers, right? But also note that your life should not look like that. Christians are not called to be callous people. Firm, yes. Lovers of justice, yes. Passionate, yes. Full of conviction, yes. Willing to stand on the truth, yes. Resentful, eh. Bitter, eh, not quite. Hard, well, you know, in some ways, no, not really, kind of not, right? Uh, we're not called, we're called to have an ability to feel, to, to walk in understanding the person that we're talking to. And so as these people, have, they've been pastoring, they've given themselves over to lewdness. We're seeing this in our world. Our world is, is venturing out into forms of uh, expression and exploration that, frankly, most people 20 years ago could not have comprehended, right? It, you just, you just, it just is beyond imagination a couple decades ago. And now it's, it's in target, right? That's pretty mainstream. And so Paul says, look, you shouldn't walk like this. Not because you need to quit walking like this so that God will love you, but because God has loved you so much, you shouldn't be walking like this. In verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. You haven't learned Christ so that you can do this. You didn't learn Christ so that you could walk in lewdness. If indeed, verse 21, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So, we understand chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here's what God has done. Paul says, okay, here's what you should do as a response. There are certain things you should put off. There are behaviors, there are ideas, there are temptations that you should put them off. You should separate yourself from those things. And then be renewed in the spirit of your mind and then put on certain things, all right? Put on the new man. He says, in, you know, I was thinking about this this week, picture like when a, it's an awkward metaphor because snakes are always bad in the Bible, but picture when a snake sheds its skin, okay? A snake shed, sheds its skin, why? Because it's growing. It outgrew the skin that it's in. And so it pops off. It's kind of a weird thing to watch, but it's kind of cool. It squeezes out of its own skin, leaves the skin behind, and moves on with life, right? Now, it would be really stupid for the snake to go try and fit back into its old skin, just wouldn't work. And it, it would restrict movement. It's not going to, it's just not going to fit. It doesn't work, right? In order for a snake to keep growing biologically, it's got to put something off. It's got to change its focus. You know what, this old skin? Boy, I've grown comfortable. It just fits me like a glove. It fits me like a skin, right? But it's time to put it off. We're going we're gonna to leave this one behind and we're going to move forward in life. And Paul's saying the same idea. 
If we're gonna, we haven't learned Christ so that we could stay in the old skin. We didn't get, God didn't save us so we can say, wow, this is so awesome, right? I can do whatever I want and God still loves me. Yes! No, no, no. That's, that, that's hanging on to the old skin. The old skin is dead, right? You ever picked up, you ever seen a snake skin? You ever held one? It's kind of interesting, right? But it's just dead. It, it's, it's, there's nothing happening there. All right? I mean, we had one that we held on to for a long time until the fleas got it, and then there was something happening, but that's different. Um, but there's no life happening in that snakeskin. If you want to move forward, you got to leave the old behind. You got to be renewed. You got to have a, a new set of vision, a new, a new goal. Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that well, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as is your reasonable service. And do not be conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul says, all right, same idea in Romans. He says, I beseech you, therefore, therefore what? Be- therefore, because of the first 11 chapters of Romans, describing basically the same thing as the first three chapters of Ephesians. Therefore, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. God, I am yours to do whatever you want with. And don't be conformed to the world, don't let the world shape you. Be transformed. You change. You look different than the world. Why? Because of what God has done. Not so that you can earn what God has done. Because of. We're putting on the new man in true righteousness and holiness. God has created a new man or a new woman for you to be, for you to walk in. One that's in true righteousness and holiness. It's for you to be righteous. God has created you for this. Therefore, verse 25, he's going to give us some things to put away or put off and some things to put on. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So, you're going to be transformed? Put off lying. Be people marked by integrity. Jesus came to tell the truth, right? If you, you, what's he say? You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Lying doesn't set anybody free, least of all you, right? So put away lying. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. It's an interesting idea because anger in our world, uh, we have a hard time understanding anger combined with self-control because we very rarely see it, right? But Jesus Christ himself could somehow go into the temple, flip all the tables over, grab a whip and start hit, grab a rope turn into a whip start hitting people with it and driving animals out and never once sin why because he was under control he never lost it he took a rope what do you do with a rope you sting people you hurt their feelings he did not grab a rock he did not grab a club he was in complete control and he was desiring justice for the sake of the holiness of god it was not you just offended me i feel so wronged no, no. It was, here's what, here's what is supposed to happen in respect to God the Father, and you're violating that. And so it is, it is right. It is right to desire justice, all right? It is right to be angry at things like, at, at the things that the world is pushing, right? Whether it's the ideas of abortion or gender transition, especially on, on kids, right? We're lying to them and then mutilating them and then letting them live the rest of their lives unfulfilled, because they thought that a surgery could fix a problem that will only be fixed by understanding the first three chapters of Ephesians. 
It's, it's right to be angry over those things. But don't sin. Don't sin in those. You know, years ago, there was, there was a man who shot uh, an abortion doctor. That's, not, that's, that's the definition of what this verse is saying not to do. Right? If you don't like what somebody's doing, what do you do? You pray for them. If you have the opportunity to, to, you know, to cast a vote wisely, to be a part of legislation, yes. But don't sin in it. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath and your interactions with other people. Don't hang on to something, right? Because we do this, right? Somebody says something to you, and we just let it, it just kind of sits there, right? And, and we kind of go back and replay it. And you know, their eyes were kind of shifty when they said it. It wasn't a passive thought. I think it was intentional. I bet they planned it out. They knew that would cut me. Yeah, I bet they talked to somebody else about it too. And we, we can build this thing in your mind, right? All of a sudden, you're in interaction with somebody. My gosh, that person is trying to wreck my life. And all they said was they didn't like mustard on a hot dog, right? Like, you can, we can blow these things out of proportion. But don't let the sun go down in your wrath. If you've got a problem with somebody, address it. Right? I've had a couple times a few times, where somebody's come to me and said, hey man, you crossed the line. What you said to me right there was not appropriate or whatever, or you were insensitive or whatever else, and they gave me a chance to address the situation and apologize and move forward. And I'm really thankful for that, because I'm sure there are other people who I've offended who haven't done it. I'm just, you know, if you know me long enough, I'll offend you, right? Um, but if you give me a chance to apologize when I offend you, I'll do my best to. If you sit and you're like, boy, Nate was really, he was just being mean to me. Well, I probably was, but it wasn't intentional. And if you are holding on to it, I guarantee you I have no idea what it is. Right? I just don't remember that far back. And so, if you've got a problem, address it. Be angry? Yeah, if, somebody needs, if something needs to be corrected, if someone needs to be disciplined, yes, deal with it. But don't sin. Don't hang on to it. Let him who stole steal no longer. But rather, let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. All right. So God saves us. So what should we do with it? Work diligently. Work honestly. Remember, we're all in full-time ministry. So there's really two kinds of work. Sometimes, you know, you're growing up. Like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do for a job? Remember this. There's only two kinds of work. There's sinful work and there's mission work. All right. There are certain things you just shouldn't be doing. Use your imagination. Don't use too much of it. There are certain things that are, fall in the category of everything else. And everything else, if you're in full-time ministry, is ministry work. It's mission work. So what should you do for the Lord? Whatever. As long as it's not a sin, right? If, you, if there's something that you just love doing, and you're like, man, I'd love to see. If I could make a living doing this, that'd just be the coolest thing ever. Go for it. That's mission work. As long as it's not a sin, let him who... Stole, steal no longer. Don't, don't violate integrity. Don't take advantage of other people in it. But work with your hands what is good, that you may have something to give him who has need. Use your work. Use it well. Use it for the glory of God. Use it to bless other people. Other people around you are going to have needs. Help meet them with your work. Right? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Thanks. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Well, that kind of hangs us all, doesn't it? Um, but only what is good for necessary edification. Say what you need to say. Somebody needs to be edified or rebuked. Say it. 
but don't waste your words. Especially don't waste your words on stupid things, right? That it may impart grace to the hearers. What you say should help people grow in the grace of the Lord. It should not tear them from the grace of God. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a scary thought, right? That you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can weep over our actions. Paul says, don't do that. And, and again, and, you know, and just, you can say, wow, Nate, you've said this all night. Yes, I have. We're not doing any of these things so that we receive the goodness of God or so that we receive the Holy Spirit or so that we get all you know, the perks that we're, we want to come to us. We're doing them because the fullness of God has been made accessible to us. Right? But there is a principle. We do live in a cause and effect universe. And so if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. All right? So Paul is saying there's a, yes, these are all response. Understand though, you are positioning yourself to either receive the correction of the Lord or receive the blessing of the Lord. You know, it's foolishness when a Christian says, well, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be rich. That's dumb because that's nowhere found in scriptures. But there are principles in scriptures in scripture, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you labor, working with your hands what is good, you will find that oftentimes you're probably not going to be rich in the, in the, I mean, it's all relative, right? But you will oftentimes find that you have enough money to do what you need. If you quit waste, if you're not buying lottery tickets or alcohol or drugs, all of a sudden, you know, I've got a little bit of money left over. And Christianity is not a path to being rich, but there are principles, okay? Verse 31, again, some of these things to put off. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, it's time to put those things off. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So, All right, so put those things off, but also be kind. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. It's interesting, Paul says, be angry and do not sin, and be kind. Right? Be angry and tenderhearted. Christianity, somebody told me once, makes you thick-skinned and tenderhearted. And I think that's a a very true statement. All right? We can can stand for justice. Man, we we can go for it. But... We also can love people. We can say, man, this person is messed up. And you know what they need? The grace of God. You know what I need? The grace of God. You know what they have access to by the Spirit of God? The grace of God. You know what I have access to by the Spirit of God? The grace of God. And I love as he's wrapping up, he says, even as God and Christ forgave you, Paul is still tying it all back. He wants to make sure we do not lose sight of the fact. That what are you, why are we doing this? Even as Christ forgave you. You don't forgive somebody because it makes you feel better. You forgive someone because Christ forgave you. Why? Because it's a response to what God has done. Everything we're talking about, everything we'll talk about next week, chapters 5 and 6. I got to teach on marriage next week. Woohoo! Uh, chapters 5 and 6. What? It's all about a response to what God has already done. So we get to put off certain things. We get to be renewed in the spirit of our mind and we get to put on the things that Christ has created for us to walk in. All right? So, Lord, we thank you. 
that we can read the first three chapters of Ephesians and know so much about your goodness, about the life that you're giving us, about the fact that you're building us up into a church for your glory. God, we pray that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. That as you're calling us to put off certain things, put on certain things, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, that we would. That we would have a desire because we understand what you've done and who you are, that we would want to know what you've done and who you are more. That we would know the knowledge of Christ, which is beyond knowledge. So God, we ask these things in your name. Please go before us. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit. God, help us to walk according to your word and walk in obedience. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.